thank you all for coming tonight. And I want to kind of um, lay out the, the plan of the topics that we'll be discussing over the next five, six weeks. Uh, but tonight, we will be answering the question, what is the mission of the church? Next week, we will look at who is a member of the church? Week three, who leads the church and who serves the church? Week four, how should the church worship? You know, corporately, collectively. And then the last week's going to be really fun because it's going to be kind of a Q&A, kind of like a panel discussion between all of the pastors and you as the congregation. Um, I'll call it a question and response rather than a question and answer because we might not necessarily have the answer to every question you have, but we will certainly respond. We won't ignore you. So we'll call it a Q&R rather than a Q&A. Um, so I'm going to begin tonight by, with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll dig into it. Father, we love you. We thank you for the body of Christ. I'm thankful for every person that is present in this room tonight and what they mean to our church, how they faithfully encourage me and my family. And so, God, as we tackle this very, very important question tonight, we pray that you would give us hearts that are receptive uh, to the teachings of Scripture, and we ask that we would, as First Baptist Dothan, be very clear in our understanding of what is the mission of our church, not only in this community, but in the world. So bless our time together tonight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if I were to ask 10 different people, if I were to just go right outside on the main street on a random Tuesday afternoon and ask 10 people, what is the mission of the Church of Jesus Christ? I would get 10 different answers. Now, granted, some of those answers would be because the people that are answering them are not saved, and so I wouldn't really expect them to have a, an accurate biblical understanding of that question. But even among Christians, you will find that if you were to poll even people in your immediate family or friends, what is the mission of the church, you would get a plethora of answers. And so what we wanted to do as we kind of embark on this doctrine, which focuses on the church, uh, and the big fancy theological word for that is ecclesiology, which is the Greek word for the study of the church, we wanted to answer that question before we went any further. What is the mission of the church? And a lot, almost all of my remarks tonight come from a book that was written by that name. What is the mission of the church? And so it, it really unpacks this question at a lot of different levels. And so a lot of the material tonight uh, comes from that book. If you want to buy that book, you just Google what is the mission of the church and you can purchase it yourself. So, is the mission of the church to do social justice? Is the mission of the church to provide activities and programs for Christians? Is the mission of the church a community center for the town in which it is located? What should the church be doing and what should it not be doing? Now, this is a loaded question. It's not an easy answer that we're going to be looking at tonight. And it's almost impossible to answer fully in 45, 50 minutes. However, it is very important for us to address and consider. So before we even get to the handout that I provided for you and we unpack the definition and all of those things, let me just make some preliminary remarks about 
what we mean and what we don't mean when we discuss this. And if you want to jot them down, you can or you can just listen. We do not want Christians, particularly those in our church, to be indifferent in any way towards the suffering around them and in, around the world. Number two, we don't want Christians to think that evangelism is the only thing in life that really counts. Number three, we don't want Christians who risk their lives and sacrifice for the poor and disadvantaged to think that their work is in any way not praiseworthy if it doesn't result in conversions. Number four, we do not want Christians to retreat into holy huddles or be unconcerned to work hard and make an impact in whatever field or career God calls them to. And then lastly, we don't want Christians to ever stop dreaming of creative, courageous ways to love their neighbors and impact their communities. So nothing of what I say tonight disregards the five things that I just mentioned. But on the flip side, we do want to make sure that the gospel, the good news of Christ's death and his resurrection is of first importance in the church. We want Christians freed from false guilt, from thinking that we as the church are responsible to fix every single problem in the world. Number three, we want the clear and unique task of the church, which is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God, to be fr front and center and to always be of utmost importance and not to get lost in a flurry of additional concerns. We want Christians to understand the storyline of the whole Bible and think more critically about specific texts, which we'll address here in a moment, within that grand story. And then we want to, the church to remember that there is something worse than death and something better than human flourishing. So if we only hope for renewed communities and restored life in this body, then we've really missed it because the gospel is, is not that ultimately. All right, so to your handout, let's begin by definitions. Here is the working definition that we're going to be using throughout our time together tonight. What is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering those disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey His commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. That's the mission of the church. That is what God has called us to do. Now, there are certainly additional texts in the Bible that people use and argue for a, a more broader understanding of what is the mission of the church, and we're going to discuss some of those texts tonight. But precisely speaking, what we just went over and what I just read that is the mission of the church. It's, it's the Great Commission. It's to make disciples of all nations. So, but let me mention a few texts that actually kind of are often used to promote a, a larger view of the mission of the church. One of those would be Genesis 12, 1 to 3, which is when God calls Abram. This is not on your handout, um, but I'm going to read it. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. 
Make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this text is pivotal, not only in the book of Genesis, but in God's plan of redemptive history. And some take this passage to mean that Christians should bless others, which we affirm. We should bless others. But this text is not advocating some sort of community blessing program where it is the goal of the church to just simply bless people. Uh, The blessing that is talked about in Genesis 12 ultimately comes by faith, where one receives the righteousness of Christ. So the blessing that's actually being talked about in the context of Genesis is the good news of the gospel, that through Abraham all of the nations will be blessed, meaning the blessing of ultimately salvation. Not just the blessing of good deeds towards those in the community, but ultimately salvation in Christ. And this is actually Paul's understanding of it. When you look in Galatians chapter 3, verse 9, quoting Genesis 12, Paul says, So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So if what we mean by blessing is that we would or we should call the nations to put their faith in Christ, then yes, that that is the blessing. But if we simply mean that we should bless the nations through some sort of community blessing program, even though that's a good thing, that's really not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is the good news of the gospel proclaimed to all the nations. Another popular text would be in the New Testament, Luke chapter 14. Verses 16 to 21, you know this passage well. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this text is often used to promote Genesis, or Genesis, to promote Jesus' ministry towards the downtrodden, towards the destitute. Which, by the way, if you read the New Testament, Jesus certainly did that. However, the main verb throughout that passage of Scripture is proclaim. So in the process of Jesus reaching out to the destitute, to the downtrodden, what is he doing? He's proclaiming the gospel. So, he did all of these great things, caring for the sick, the oppressed, the poor, the blind, but he did that through the proclamation of the gospel. I didn't put this on your handout, but just as a side note, go read the gospels clearly, and you will see that Jesus' primary intention was never in any community or town or city that he went to, it was never primarily to heal. It was never primarily to heal the sick, um, move somebody from blindness to sight. That was never the primary motive. The primary motive was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And those healings, those miracles that he performed reinforced the message of the gospel. So if all we do And if all Jesus did was heal people, 
they're still dead in their sins. Right? He had to heal them spiritually by urging them to turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ alone. Now, he used the miracles, again, to reinforce the gospel and to establish credibility with those that he was communicating to. But his primary intent, you can go look at this, every single time he went to a new place, he was not there to primarily heal someone of a disease. He was there to proclaim the truth of the gospel. So, let's actually look at these great commission passages, all of them, so that you see that I'm not just making this up on my own. Let's start with the most famous one that if you grew up in the church, you learned probably one of the first texts you ever learned. Now the ele- uh, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the most popular and the most often cited Great Commission passage. But there's one in every gospel. Mark 13, 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Then you jump to Mark 14, 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. When you go to Luke chapter 24, this is a more traditional uh, the Mark Great Commission is a little different. Mark 24, 44 to 49. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And what rep- and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then John 20, 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So all of these great commission passages, here's what they teach us. Why why should they take precedence? Why should we root our understanding of the mission of the church from these passages, as opposed to any other passage we, should, we could look at. Uh, look at what I said here. We should always ground the mission of the church on Scripture's explicit commands. And while the Old Testament does show God's heart for the nations, the Old Testament is mainly concerned with the nation of Israel. Their mission 
shines by attraction rather than invitation. And when I was reading and studying this, I began to reflect on this and think about it, and it's true. There's not many evangelistic Old Testament passages in the sense of Israel going out and recruiting people uh, to their cause. It's really, they shine as God's people not through invitation, but rather through attraction. In other words, God is primarily concerned with their holiness, which is why he um, institutes the law, which is why he's constantly rebuking them for their unholiness, because their unholiness provided a poor witness to the surrounding nations around them. However, our understanding of the mission of the church is a people being actively sent out to other peoples with a task to accomplish things, which is conquering people with the good news of the gospel, that comes from our understanding of the New Testament. Thus, it makes sense that we should look for our missiological direction from Jesus himself, and almost everything we know about Jesus' earthly ministry comes from the Gospels. And then... Um, the placement of where you find the Great Commission in all of the Gospels communicates their strategic importance. Generally speaking, they come towards the end of all four Gospel accounts. So the last words of Jesus have always, throughout the history of the church, been taken very seriously by his followers. Most evidently seen in that Matthew 28 passage. So the early church viewed those words of Jesus as his most important ones and gave shape ultimately to how they performed the mission of the church. Therefore, that's how we should inform our understanding of the mission of the church. And then ultimately, just to sum it up, the Great Commission in all those passages that we read sums up many of the major themes of the gospel. So, we root our mission in our understanding of the Great Commission. Again, we're going to talk in a moment about all the good things that the church of Jesus Christ can do. But we're talking about what it must do. And there's a big difference between that. So let's put it all together to summarize it for you there on your page. The who, what, when, where, why, and the to whom as well. So who? Jesus gave this mission verbally to the first disciples But it did not end with their deaths. As Lord of the church, he expects his followers to carry out this mission to the end of the age. So their mission is our mission. It has not changed. The very words that Jesus gave to Peter, Paul, James, John, and the other apostles is the same mission that we have today. Why? Well, the authority for our mission comes from Christ. It is rooted in the Word of God. It is based on the Father's sending of the Son. We are sent because Christ was sent, and we go in His name under His authority. What? So what is it? The mission consists of preaching, teaching, announcing, testifying, making disciples, and bearing witness. The mission focuses on the initial and continuing verbal declaration of the gospel the announcement of Christ's death and resurrection and the life found in Him when we repent and believe. Where? We're sent into the world. 
Our strategy is no longer, as it often was in the Old Testament, a come and see strategy, but rather a go and tell strategy. The message of salvation is for every people group, near, far, everywhere in between. In my prayer this morning, three billion people currently do not have access to the gospel. We're not saying that they're not Christians and they've heard it and they choose not to believe. We're saying that they don't know what the gospel is. It's it's a foreign language to them. They couldn't define it even if they wanted to because they don't know what it is. So that mission is what we're about. It's the whole world hearing the good news of the gospel. How do we go about doing it? Well, Great Commission teaches us in the power of the Holy Spirit and in submission to the Son. Just as Jesus was uh, submissive and obedient and dependent upon his Father. When? Well, it began at Pentecost when the disciples were clothed with power from on high, with the presence of the Spirit. The mission will last as long as the promise of Christ's presence lasts, that is, to the end of the age. So until Christ returns, this is the mission that we are on. It does not change. We do not come up with a new vision for it. We submit to that same mission. And to whom? The church. The church is responsible for making disciples of all nations. So we, as a church, locally and universally, must go to every people group proclaiming the good news to the ends of the earth. So that kind of puts it all together for you. Now, with those Great Commission passages set in place, I also want to show you across the whole storyline of the Bible, how we come to that conclusion from all of the Great Commission passages we just discussed. So here's the question that I have for you that the whole Bible answers. How can hopelessly rebellious, sinful people live in the presence of a perfectly just and righteous God? If you had to just kind of put an an overarching question that Genesis to Revelation is addressing, that would be the question. So now let's walk through the whole storyline of the Bible in a very, very fast amount of time uh, to show you this. And it's broken down. This is a very common outline. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's kind of the, the four pieces of the the puzzle or the pie, if you will. Let's begin in creation. So why did God create man? Humans were originally created to live in perfect fellowship and harmony with God. This is the picture we see in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve had everything that they needed to live in perfect fellowship and in God's presence. Adam and Eve were called to basically rule over and care for God's creation. Of course, we know that ultimately they don't do that. But they were created, therefore, to be human beings that occupied a unique and privileged position within the world. They were to rule as vice regents, if you will, to stand in a special relationship with him as no other creature did, which is why we're more important than other things that God created. It's all important, but God's creation of humanity is his prized possession, if you will. We stand in a special relationship to him. 
So that's the story of Genesis 1 and 2, which is a very small part of the Bible, but yet has huge theological ramifications for everything else you believe about the Bible. So what about the fall? Well, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. You know it well. Adam and Eve eat of the fruit which God commanded them not to. The relationship now of creature to creator has changed. Okay, It's not the same anymore. It has a legal and a moral one now. Look at Genesis 3 or listen to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sin, here's what God does to them in verse 24. God drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden and he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God did not immediately take Adam's life, but he did immediately cast him out of his presence, closing the way back to life, back into his presence with the flaming swords. So here's what we learn in just creation and fall. To summarize, the prime problem that the Bible sets up in these three chapters is the alienation from God that we as human beings experience. Number two, the hope of salvation is not for Adam to work to return to its original very good state, but rather for God to now effect salvation through a mediator, which we know to be Jesus. And third, these themes of alienation from God and salvation by a mediator are a central element or a central theme moving forward to the whole storyline of the Bible. So just a little bit further, in those first 11 chapters of Genesis, we talked about this many times. In Genesis 4 to Genesis 11, there is a continued spiral of moral corruption and sin. And it begins with Cain and Abel, and it works its way into the family of Noah, ultimately becoming an issue at the story of the Tower of Babel, when man builds a tower so that they can be like God. The whole point of Genesis 4 to 11 is to show you that man is hopelessly sinful and rebellious. And unless God intervenes, there is no hope. Which brings us to the story of redemption which doesn't just begin with Jesus, it actually begins with Abraham in Genesis 12. Abraham is promised a blessing by God, and God promises Abraham three things if he will obey him. Land, offspring, and then he will make him a blessing to the nations. This is what Abraham has promised. So the great blessing that Abraham would bring to the families of the earth was ultimately the blessing of being justified and declared righteous through Christ, even though we know that Christ hasn't come yet. So how are the Israelites saved then in the Old Testament? Jesus hasn't come. He hasn't lived the perfect life. He hasn't died on the cross for their sins. So how do the Israelites experience salvation? Through their faith in the once or the one Messiah that will come. They're still justified by God's grace through faith, in Christ alone. However, it's based on a faith of one who one day will come. And this is, this is so much of the theme of what the prophets in the Old Testament are writing about. There will be one, Isaiah says, who will come. And that's who you Israelites are to put your hope and your faith in. 
So what about Moses and the Exodus? The Exodus functions as a paradigm for salvation. We should see in the Exodus God's redemption of His people from slavery, and then we rejoice that He redeems them from that slavery. But it's not slavery ultimately from a foreign power, even though it is. For you and me, it is slavery from sin. So we see in that paradigm of the Exodus something that was rooted historically, but that takes great significance theologically for God's people throughout time. In the same way the Israelites are saved from their bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, we are saved from our bondage to sin. They are slaves to the Egyptians. We are slaves to sin. That's the correlation. Even though they are free from slavery, however, in the Exodus, they are still not in a free and perfect relationship with God. They're still sinful people, and thus they remain separated from God. So God sets up parameters in Exodus chapter 19. And He forbids the people to go up to the mountain, if you remember, or to even touch the edge of it. And in the law, God gives His people instructions on how they can atone for their sin and thus not be destroyed by being in the presence of God. The sacrifices also that they practice point to the fact that sin's penalty is death. And for human beings to dwell with God, that penalty will have to be paid by someone. And in the Old Testament, it's always paid through the shedding of sin of blood and goats. And in the New Testament, sin is forgiven by Christ. Think of Hebrews 9, 13, and 14 for reference. All of it points to the the forward coming of the sacrificial death of Jesus. So again, in the story of Moses and the giving of the law, the central problem is being addressed. How can a sinful and rebellious people live in the presence of a holy God? Now, let's keep moving in the story. So we have creation, we have the fall, we have the exodus period. What about uh, moving all the way to King David? The people of Israel, eventually, they make their way out of Egypt. They wander in the wilderness. They make it to the promised land, and they begin demanding that God give them a king. God does so. Even though that demand is a direct rejection of his rule over them. So it begins with Saul, who is disobedient. And then it moves on to David. And God makes some promises to David, which are just like the promises he gives to Abraham. It's the promise of land in 2 Samuel 7. Offspring also in 2 Samuel 7. And while there's no explicit mention of blessing to the nations, the psalmists and the prophets do mention that. So all the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, it's passed down all the way to the king of Israel, and it comes to rest in that one specific person, the king of Israel. And as God reveals more of his plan, the prophets begin to see that all of those promises will find their final fulfillment, that is, the final reconciliation of God and man. It's going to be affected through a king who suffers and dies for his people. That king is the representative of his people. But unfortunately... In 2 Samuel, and first and 2 Kings, and throughout the rest of the Old Testament, 
no king can fully and perfectly live up to the expectations of that. Which brings us to Christ. The New Testament makes the startling claim that the throne of David is no longer empty. Remember, after 586 B.C., when the temple is destroyed, Israel is taken into exile. And there is a period where they are living under foreign rule. So there is no king in Israel. But with the entrance of Jesus onto the scene, the great promised king who would bring blessing to the nations and would reconcile sinful man to a holy God has finally come. And it's come through King Jesus. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus' kingship is emphasized again and again, culminating with the kingly image that surrounds his crucifixion. Think about it. The robe that he wears, the crown of thorns on his head, the sign above the cross that says the king of the Jews. It's important to see that Jesus understood that inherent to his kingship was the salvation of his people from their sin. Saul couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Solomon couldn't do it. Rehoboam certainly didn't do it. And I could keep naming even good kings like Josiah and Hezekiah. They all show glimpses of faithfulness to God. But if you read First and Second Kings, just as an example, uh, I did this in my Bible when I was reading through it some years ago. Even the little sentences in those books that talk about this particular king uh, walked with God, but then you always see something like, but he did not tear down the high places. He continued to worship Baal. Even in the context of those kings doing good things, they could not fully live the life that God demanded them to live. They show glimpses, but yet still incomplete. So, Jesus ultimately is the one who restores fellowship between his people and God. He is the mediator that we look back to when we were talking about the blessing that God gave to Abraham. A mediator had to come. Jesus is that mediator. And upon Jesus' death, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. The act of God dramatically symbolized the end of humanity's exile from God's presence. Now, after so many years, they are welcome to enter again into the most holy place through Jesus. In addition, the tombs around Jerusalem when Jesus dies were opened. And those who had been dead were raised and went into the city. It was another indication that the curse of death had fallen on Adam's race. And now there is a way back to God. And of course, the greatest triumph was his resurrection over death. Having suffered and died as the sin bearer of his people, Jesus rose from the dead, conquered death once and for all. And greatest of all, for those who are his people, he has united them by faith. He broke the curse of Eden and restored fellowship with God. That's under redemption. Now, what about consummation? After the resurrection, Jesus gives his disciples charge to go into the world and witness to what they had seen and experienced. Through their lives together in churches, they bear witness to the life of the kingdom. They encourage one another in faithfulness, and they look forward to the day when King Jesus will return to earth to fully and completely establish God's reign on a renewed and transformed earth. So understanding that story and its central features helps us understand that 
Ultimately, Jesus' final words in the Great Commission are to be my witnesses. When he declares that to his disciples, repentance, forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So it's a long way at getting at what I want you to see is that from Genesis to Revelation, the whole storyline of the Bible is answering that question. How can hopelessly rebellious, sinful people live in the presence of a perfectly just and righteous God? And that's the whole story of the Bible. That is what it is addressing. From the creation of Adam and Eve all the way to the second coming of Christ when he returns for his people. So if that is the primary theme of the 66 books of the Bible addressing that issue, then it becomes pretty obvious that the mission of the church should fall in line with that, which takes us back to our definition that we talked about earlier. So, with all of that being said, you might be wondering, well, where do good works and good deeds fall into this? We know the mission of the church is to evangelize and make disciples and all of those things, but does the church have no responsibility in just doing good in the community, blessing people, as we talked about earlier? And that's not an easy question to answer. But ultimately, we do have a responsibility to do that. And I don't have time at all tonight to go through a lot of the passages that would address the uh, common phrase that we would use, what, you know, what is the church's role in social justice? And even when I say that term, it's been so politicized and been so um, distorted that people's minds jump around. But what we mean is what, is, what is First Baptist Dothan's role in the community in which we live? When we know what the mission of the church is to evangelize people, to make disciples of all nations, uh, not only here in Dothan, but around the world. But what, what is our responsibility in doing other things that might not actually result in conversion? Because we all know that if we do good deeds in a sort of um, manipulative way, in other words, if we go into the community, if, if we do good things in the community only with the intent of conversions, and then those conversions don't happen, do we just pull out? Right? So these are questions that we have to discover and discuss tonight. So I want to give you some passages. We're not going to have time to go over all of them. But some passages that kind of make the argument for, you know, what is the role of the church in society at large? Leviticus 19, 9 through 18. It's probably the most common passage that's often used to argue for the church's role in doing good. Uh, in, in verses 9 and 10, it's loving others with possessions. In 11 and 12, loving others with our words. Verses 13 and 14, loving others with our actions. 15 and 16, loving others in our judgments. And then 17 and 18, loving others in our attitudes. So that passage can sort of be summarized with, we are to share, tell the truth, don't take advantage of the weak, be fair, and talk it out. Then you move on to Isaiah 58. And we find out that God is not impressed with simply religious ritual. The Israelites in this passage were sinful because they oppressed their workers. 
when they should have shared bread with the hungry, clothed the naked, and welcomed the homeless poor. So caring for the poor is not some sort of liberal agenda. Caring for the poor is biblical. God's people should hate oppression and love to help the poor. Amos 5, very well-known passage. It was used in I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King Jr. Let justice roll down like waters. So God cares about justice and the poor. On the other hand, His wrath burns against those who commit injustice and trample the poor. So Amos, in that prophetic book, actually condemns the specific sins of the Israelites. They were kicking the poor when they were down instead of helping them. They were doing justice only for those that uh, were the highest bidders. They had arbitrary, excessive taxation on the poor to benefit the rich. They had a, a smug assurance on the part of the rich who lived in a life of luxury on the backs of the poor's. And this is a reference back to, this is exactly what the Egyptians did to the Israelites. And so Amos is telling God's people, do not do these things. Micah 6.8, what does do justice mean in that passage? Some in Judah were coveting fields and seizing them, oppressing others through corruption and law-breaking. In other words, these men were, they were land grabbers. They were taking what they did not own and they had the power to get away with it. They weren't just buying more land, they were stealing it, which is a violation of the Eighth Commandment and in opposition to the stipulations about safeguarding a family inheritance. So these Old Testament texts show us that doing justice is not the same as redistribution, nor does it encompass everything a godly Israelite would do in obedience to God. But injustice refers to those who oppress, who cheat, or who make judicial decisions with partiality. Doing justice then implies fairness, decency, and honesty. Now, in the New Testament, the most common passage that, we, uh, that people look to to argue for uh, a social justice understanding of the church would be Matthew 25, 31 to 46. It's that passage where Jesus discusses the least of these, right? You know this passage. But when you study the context of what Jesus is saying there, the least of these actually refers to itinerant Christian teachers who are dependent on the hospitality of God's people. So it's not that we don't care about the least of these, but just understand within the context of that passage, it is not a call to actually care for the poor and the downtrodden at large. It is a specific command to take care of itinerant Christian teachers who are dependent on the hospitality of others. The Good Samaritan, one of the best stories that we have, Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. What is that teaching us? We cannot limit our love to only the people that we love. We cannot limit our love to only those that we're comfortable ministering to. We're not to seek a limit to how we go about loving our neighbors. Rather, we are to be a neighbor to anyone who is in need. So all of these passages, all, all that I can do is just give you some implications for you to jot down to consider. And I didn't put them on your sheet because I wanted to keep the sheet to one page. So you'll just have to listen. Number one, don't undersell what the Bible says about the poor and about social justice. 
Don't undersell that. At the same time, number two, don't oversell what the Bible says about the poor in social justice. Don't misinterpret text to make arguments for a specific ministry that you want to be involved in. Make sure that you're being faithful to what the text is teaching. Number three, accept the complexities of determining a biblical theology of wealth, poverty, and material possessions. Number four, be very careful with how you use the term social justice. Number five, and perhaps most applicable to us, appropriate the concept of moral proximity. This is very important. Moral proximity is the idea that the closer we see injustice being done, the more of an obligation we have to address that. So in other words, the closer we see it happening, if it's happening on a street right down the road, that's of a greater concern to us than trying to be able to address some social justice in Seattle, Washington, or on the other side of the world. It's not, we're not saying that it's not all important, but that the church has an obligation to address those things within the proximity of um, what would make the most sense for us to do. Number six, and I can't get into this, the book, the book does a wonderful job of explaining this. Connect our good intentions with sound economics. So in other words, it's a, long, a fancy way of saying like, understand when we steward our resources and when we help people out financially, when it's actually helping and when it's actually hurting. And there's a big difference there. In fact, this is a book that I would recommend that everyone read. It's a book that's often used uh, before people go on mission trips around the world. And those of you that have been around the world and to other parts of the world, you know this. It's not always helpful to help someone financially. Like there are actually times when helping hurts. And that's the name of the book, When Helping Hurts. So it's being aware that um, while we, as Americans, and especially our church, while we have the ability to help any number of people financially, there are actually times when even helping them financially hurts them. It doesn't actually put them in a position uh, to be successful long term. And can I just say that all of these require incredible prayer and wisdom and discernment. I don't want anybody here leaving tonight thinking that these are easy decisions to make. They should be prayed over. They should be done very pastorally with great sensitivity. And then number seven, the implication is love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus calls us to do. So, as we conclude here, why then do we do good? Why do we do good in the world? Well, we do good works to obey God whom we love. He calls us to do good works, therefore we do them. We do good works because we love our neighbor. We do good works to show the world God's character and God's work. We do good works because they are the fruit of the Spirit's work in our lives. It gives evidence that we are in fact in Christ when we do good works. And then we do good works to win a hearing for the gospel. 
It's very easy to get caught up in doing good works because we know God calls us to do that as Christians, but neglecting the reason that we should do them. And it's to proclaim the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that if I see someone on the street, I tell them, I'm only going to go get you, um, you know, a hamburger for McDonald's if I can go through a gospel presentation with you. And you respond. No, we don't, we don't manipulate people in that way. But nevertheless, we cannot forget that the reason we're doing these good works is because the Holy Spirit resides in us. Therefore, we desire for other people to hear the good news of the gospel. Now, the reason the mission of the church is so difficult to discuss and it causes so many people to question and begin to be critical is um, if someone says good works are not of utmost importance, some people will think or, or say that that means we don't care about them at all. And that's not true. So we kind of need to be less black and white in our discussion of this. So as we close, one minute remaining on my timer here. What should we as a church then, now practically speaking, First Baptist Dothan, what should we be doing as a church? What is the mission of our church? So let's answer some questions. Can the church as an institution spend its time and its resources doing good works? Of course. Of course it can. Must it? however, do so, that's up for debate. Ultimately, the church is called to do the things under this definition that we have described tonight. Is it illegitimate for the church to do anything other than evangelism? It's actually not. If, if, if we, stay with me for a moment, if we exhausted all of our financial resources, we're not done. If we exhausted all of our budget towards doing nothing but evangelism, somehow if we were to go out and um, spend our money doing that, I don't even know how that would look. But if we were out there proclaiming the good news of the gospel, understanding that the mission of the church is to go into the world, make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit, gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey His commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father, we would not be disobedient to what the mission of the church is. Now, that's not all that we do. And by God's grace, we are a church who is able to do much more. However, if that is all that we could do, that would not be illegitimate. That would be right in line with the mission of what the New Testament teaches. So, must the church then institutionally spend its time and resources doing those things? If you understand, as we have, or as I have argued tonight, that the church's mission is the proclamation of the gospel and making disciples, then, you know, bettering the city in which we live and the world's social conditions become, at best, a less direct way of fulfilling that mission. And therefore, I would argue, and you might disagree, and that's okay, I would argue that it actually falls short of being a universal obligation for the local church. Again, not saying it's not important, not saying that we would stop doing it,
But if we had a choice between only performing good works for the community, if our only options were caring for the poor or evangelizing, what would we do? We would evangelize. Now, again, we don't have to be that black and white by the grace of God. But the reason I'm teaching on this tonight is I want you to understand that what is of utmost importance is the proclamation of the gospel. And to the extent that we water that down in even the slightest way, it's very easy for churches to forget that core principle and begin performing good deeds and good works, which will bless other people, but could ultimately leave them without the very heart change that they need in order to be reconciled to a holy God. So here's just a principle for you to consider. Generally speaking, again, generally speaking, a church, a local church, should lean, tend towards doing those activities and spending its resources on projects that would more directly, rather than less directly, further its central mission. Therefore, this is what we should be asking, even as, a, as our church all the time. What is our mission? What will further that mission? An even better question would be, you know, how can we go about furthering that mission of taking the gospel into the world? And again, as I said earlier, how that plays itself out is a matter of prayer. It is a matter of discernment and wisdom for the leadership of the church to determine. But it is not, and I, what I'm trying to accomplish partly with this talk is to relieve the burden that we often feel as Christians that it is our obligation to fix every problem in the world. And number one, we can't do that because we're not God. But number two, when we get down to the nitty-gritty of what issues we do want to tackle and which ones we do want to address, we need to approach it with a proper understanding of what is the mission of the church. And what is it not? So we're not going to be able to meet every single need. Though we have biblical motivation to, to work towards that end, we're not going to be able to do it. It is our responsibility, however, and our unique responsibility, mission and priority, to make sure that the gospel gets told. That neighbors, nations may know that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in His name. That's the mission of the church. Lots of things that we can do. We're answering the question, what must we do? And if it got to the point where we had to begin uh, cutting our budget or making decisions about we, how we as a church would operate, and again, by God's grace, we're not in that position. But we would want to get to the point where we could easily begin to slash things that might be good but are ultimately not necessary to the mission that God has called us to do. So I know I've left you tonight probably with more questions than answers, but what I would encourage you to do is to just think about what it is God has called our church to do and to also remember... Um, those preliminary remarks that I made about we still care for the downtrodden and the less fortunate. We do good works, absolutely. 
But ultimately, we have a mission that God has entrusted to us to accomplish, and that has to be our primary focus. So I'm going to pray for us tonight. Also, here's what I would tell you, and this is where it becomes important when we conclude this whole series. So hopefully you were jotting down notes or thinking of questions throughout this talk. Write those down. Uh, even if you want to email them on to me or some of the other pastors. And in that question and answer time, that question and response session that we'll have here in a few weeks, we'll try to address as many of those questions that you might have in a, in a large group setting. So please write those questions down, email them to me, text them to me, whatever, and we'll collect all of those. And in that question and response uh, session that we have, we'll try to address as many of those as we can. Not just for this week's session, but all of them. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go eat catfish. You know catfish are bottom feeders, right? Okay. So I'm not going to be eating it, but I'll be down there supporting you in the process. All right? Let's pray. God, I, I pray that this message is received with uh, humility, and God, I pray that you would give us hearts to man, wrestle with this question as a church about what it is you've called us to do. We know that this is a very complex issue that can easily become um, heated and opinionated. So God, I just ask that we would all submit to your lordship and that we would humble ourselves to the teachings of Scripture. God, we all know uh, people neighbors that live on the right or the left of us or across the street, co-workers, family members, people that we exercise with that, that aren't saved. And they, they need the gospel. So God, would you make that the forefront of our hearts personally, but also at the forefront of what we do as a church. And as we also seek to, di to discern how we could do good in the community in which we live and how we could do good around the world, I pray that we would always do it with the mission of the church at the forefront. And that is the good news of the gospel for a people that are hopelessly sinful and rebellious and in need of reconciliation to you through a mediator, Jesus Christ. Bless us now as we go down to partake of this fish. Use it to give us strength. God, thank you for this church. We ask that you would continue to build up our church more into the image of your Son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.